1990, John Wasson of North Carolina's New Hanover County Department of Social Services was appointed guardian of Junius Wilson, an elderly African-American patient at a mental institution in the town of Goldsboro. The patient's records reveal the story of a deaf man accused in 1925 of the attempted rape of a relative, found insane at a lunacy hearing, committed to the criminal ward of the State Hospital for the Colored Insane, and surgically castrated. Sixty-five years later, Wilson was still an inmate of the same hospital. Wasson was shocked when he discovered after reading the file and talking to staff that Junius Wilson was not insane. J. Field Montgomery, director of Cherry Hospital in the 1990s, admitted that the institution had known at least since the early 1960s that the deaf man was not mentally ill. As Montgomery said, you didn't have to be insane to be committed back then. The hospital also had evidence that the charges against Wilson had been dropped by 1970, which meant that he was no longer required to be incarcerated at Cherry Hospital. In spite of these revelations, the Goldsboro Institution held Wilson for more than 20 additional years on the grounds that it was the most benevolent course of action. Junius Wilson had been incarcerated in an insane asylum merely because he was deaf and black. Bureaucratic inertia and staff paternalism helped keep him there for 65 years. What John Wasson saw as he sifted through Junius Wilson's hospital records was certainly not a typical account. But Wilson's story has much to tell historians trying to understand eugenics, deaf cultural identity, state institutions, racism, and the Jim Crow South. During his 92 years, Wilson experienced the effects of the racism endemic to the South. But communications difficulties evolving from his deafness isolated the young Wilson from the broader African-American community and the protection, albeit limited, that this community might have afforded him. For a short time, Wilson had been a member of a different sort of community, the black deaf community. In 1916, the young boy entered the North Carolina School for the Colored, Blind, and Deaf in Raleigh, a state residential school and the first southern school for black deaf children. Life at a deaf school initiated Wilson into a distinctive deaf cultural identity. Interacting with deaf peers, deaf students learned to communicate primarily in sign language, shared in storytelling and deaf folklore, and created social connections. But Wilson was separated from this community in 1924 when a minor infraction led to his expulsion. At home in Castle Hayne, Wilson was no longer fully part of the local community or even his family. His misunderstood behavior was probably what prompted the apparently false rape charge against him. His inability to communicate was all that was necessary for a court to declare him legally insane and to force his incarceration at a mental institution. Wilson's entrance into North Carolina State Hospital for the Colored Insane in 1925 was his introduction into a community and culture that did not generally accommodate or even acknowledge his physical or cultural deafness. But as scholars of mental hospitals have demonstrated, such institutions did provide their inmates with a sense of place and identity. Indeed, Wilson's integration into this environment caused his later caretakers to conclude that he could not leave it because it was his true home. Although Wilson seemed at times to suggest that he agreed, 
legal challenges to his incarceration were initiated on his behalf in the 1990s. According to Marshall Smith, policies sparked by Wilson's legal challenges and other disability class action suits promised greater protection for current and future disabled inmates across the nation. As the histories of institutions such as Cherry Hospital are brought to light, various states are acknowledging forced sterilization campaigns. Efforts by psychiatric survivors and others who were the subject of forced sterilizations represent a new wave of civil rights activism. They also point to evolving relationships between the state and society. Campaigns to acknowledge and compensate victims of eugenic programs raise thorny issues of justice that mirror other government reparation initiatives. How should a society, indeed how can a society, make amends for past misdeeds?